When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody, I'm Reggie Williams, founder and CEO of Ambrosia for Heads. And with me, I have Jake Payne, our editor-in-chief. And together, this is our What's the Headline podcast. What's happening, man? Yo, man. Another day in paradise. It's finally the fall, my favorite season of the year. I don't know about you. I see it's hoodie season for you, which is great. Yeah, you get um, that Christmas in, the bre- Christmas in the breeze here, you know? Yeah, man. That's what I look forward to. We got that. We got holidays coming up. You can still be outside. But um, yeah, man, we got some great hip hop news. We uh, you and I took a week off and I was stunned at the people that were hitting us up um, saying, yo, what would you guys do? You can't be consistent. So we had to, uh, you know, we had to had to, you know, come back with some content. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And hopefully we got a special guest coming up soon, too. Uh, one that we're very excited about, but we'll see. We'll see about that. But let's kick it off, man. So uh, I think one of the biggest reactions we got this week was a very surprising reunion. There was no lead up, no build up to anything like this. Just they dropped it one day and the next day, boom, they're on stage together. And that was the Fuji's. Yeah, man. Fuji La. I did not in a million years see this coming. Just even think it was in the air. Did you? Not remotely, man. I, you know, I, I could have foreseen Lauren doing something solo after that Nas verse, uh, you know, on Nobody, just because so much momentum. It sounded like her pen game was sharp, like she'd been writing uh, and been in the studio. So that wouldn't have surprised me. But the Fugees together, that that that's that's wild to me. Yeah, I mean, earlier this year, you know, the score, the reason they got back together is 25 years of the score, which is obviously their you know, benchmark album, I would say, you know, certainly a music classic, but a hip hop classic for sure. Um, and she and back in February, when the real anniversary is, even her Instagram post was like a fan reminded me that this album <laughs> was turning 25. And, you know, I, I don't think any of the three Fugees, Wyclef, Proz or Lauren, Miss Lauren Hill, um, you know, spend a lot of time living in the past at this point. So, yeah, I mean, this one was a sneak attack and even down to whether or not we would report on it, you know, given kind of our current content strategy, you and I, um, you know, weren't even sure that it was a dial mover, which is funny because it turned out to be a big one. Gigantic, you know. So let's talk about this for a second, because we have gone back and forth over the years on which anniversaries to cover. Yeah. You know, we don't do like every single year because that gets tired and played out after a while. Uh, we tend to focus on the, the 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 fives and the tens, you know. So ten year is is a big one. Fifteen years seems to not resonate as much. You know, we found that twenty years was kind of like our sweet spot in terms of like really, you know, generating a lot of hype and interest. But twenty five now seems to be a big one that um, the groups themselves, the artists themselves, push. So what what do you think about that, man? Which anniversary do you think is the most significant? Now we got 30 years too. Uh, We just had Tribe's low end theory. And it's funny because for that one, one of our biggest articles this week was the the 25 anniversary piece that uh, you and Amanda Bonita Mester had worked on and I had edited back and and transcribed in, in 2016. 
And, you know, and I'm glad to see that that content still matters. I am often just overwhelmed with anniversaries. You'll see five, 10, 15. I think the 25 matters, but I think hip hop is getting to a place. I mean, you go back 25 and 30 years right now, and that is the sweet spot of so many albums that hip hop heads hold near and dear to their heart. But I think for something like this, 25 makes sense. We saw something earlier in the year. Um, you know, last year, actually, we, we interviewed Havoc for 25 years of um, Mob Deeps to Infamous. And this year, you know, it was 25 years since Atelions by Outkast. And I think a labels get involved a lot. And 25 is the big one. I think the rock and roll community and the jazz community, R&B, has, has made a big to-do of 25. So that will be the one that I think gets a lot of the attention. But that doesn't mean that every site out there, every publication, every person on Twitter isn't going to, you know, throw their hat in the air for 5, 10, 15, and 20. Yeah, you think about college reunions and 25 seems to be the big one for college. Okay. And part of that is because it's that time when a lot of people have kids that are about to go into college and they're looking for that big check, you know? Mm. So um, I didn't even think of that. And now it's pushed out to 30 because people are having kids older, Yeah. Uh, you know, but what do you think drives it for, for, for music and for, for artistry in general? I mean, this is going to sound cynical, but I think there's a, I think there's a, an opportunity to, to monetize it. And you look at, it, I think the Fugees are a rare exception, but you know, Mob Deep, and we didn't talk to Havoc about this, but you know, their first album didn't do so well, you know, Juvenile Hell, and then they come back and, and presumably I don't think Loud Records would have sound, you know, signed them and done that deal in a hugely artist favorable sort of way. So you make a classic album. It's what people want to see when you're performing. And if you get an opportunity later in life to do merchandise, to do touring, to do a documentary like Nas did with Illmatic, I think that that's going to make sense. And it's just a cool stopping point because 25 years later, just like, you know, college reunions, you are at a whole different place in life. And it's really cool that for hip hop heads, you can look at a Raekwon or an Outkast or a Mob Deep or a Fuji's and see these artists evolve and be in totally different places, but take time to kind of come back and give fans, you know, what they remember, what they want. This is about nostalgia too. And I guarantee you, I mean, the Fuji's announced a tour. These ticket prices are going to be up, up, up. And these are going to be sold out shows, especially with, you know, the way audiences are being regulated. But I mean, it's going to be a money opportunity for three very talented artists. But do you disagree at all? Do you think that? Yeah, I think I think I think money drives every, cash rules, everything around me, you know, yeah. so I th think that's a big part of it. But but I agree with everything you said. It's also a great time to go back and reflect on these massive achievements, you know, the greatness of the group, um, the greatness of the album. You know, your point about ticket prices is is right, because I saw someone on IG posted um, they were trying to rebuy. They were trying to purchase tickets for the New York show that happened the day after the announcement. And they were like seven hundred dollars each, wow. which is absolutely absurd. I think it was like forty dollars list price or something like that. So tickets are out of control. But, you know, think taking it back, you know, hip hop, I think at first 20 years was the right thing because it's still such a young genre, relatively speaking. And so the notion of, you know, great art being made 20 years ago for hip hop was, you know, that seemed like a long time ago. But as it continues to age, I think 25 years is the one that is kind of universal for all anniversaries across every category as the, the big one, you know, so it makes sense to me. And after that, I think 30 years, 35, 40, 50, 
you know, starts to lose uh, resonance because people weren't around at that time, or, you know, it's just not, doesn't have the same impact. So it's kind of like that line between, you know, old enough to be reverent, but not so old that it's irrelevant, you know? That's really well said. And I think it's cool. I mean, you know, somebody out there will be celebrating all of these different benchmarks, whether it's 20 or 25. And that has to be cool for the artist because, you know, there was a period of time when AFH was publishing, you know, three to five stories a day where we did celebrate a lot of anniversaries. And one of the reasons we did that wasn't to get page views, but we wanted to, you know, offer something different in the space. So, you know, the, the low-end theory one to go speak to Skef Anselm um, and Bob Power and, and have conversations with people that are going to be different than what you might see at another publication is valuable. And even in looking at the Fuji's 25 for the score, you know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that you and I and Amanda and the rest of our team, you know, we put in work, we celebrated a lot of things that, that dropped nuggets and anecdotes about these albums that are right here when the rest of the world is ready to celebrate. Well, so let's talk about the Fuji's and why it is such a big deal, why people want to celebrate them. So I want to talk about them as an artist, but also this album, because mm-hmm. this album, you know, their first album, to your point about Mob Deep, their first album didn't do that well. Um, you know, it was they had um, a single called The Vocab and it did OK. Um, and nappy, then Nappy Heads, too. Was the nappy other. Heads. Nappy Heads did all right, too. But I mean, I, I don't even remember that one. I don't think most people will, you know, but it was and the album kind of languished. But it was when the vocab remix came out that it changed everything. You know, that that actually put them back on people's radar, made them excited. Um, Lauren, you know, always you know incredible on that. Uh, y Club was dope. Um but when the score dropped, I don't think anyone was ready for the impact of that album. And most people attribute the success to um, Killing Me Softly, right? Lauren's remake of Roberta Flack's classic. Um, and that song was incredible. But for hip hop heads, the album was so much more than that. I mean, you had the, the title track by, you know, Diamond D. You had... Um, you know, so many other great songs from, from Fuji La. Fuji La, yeah. And it was a great hip hop album, great rap. It was great songs, you know, great singing, great musicality. What it, what does it represent to you? Because I know you probably caught it later on in life. When you went back to it, what did, what did it say to you? No, 96 was the year that I really started to get all in on hip hop. And, you know, my cousin had the album, um, you know, dropped the same month, I believe the same day as Tupac's All Eyes on Me which, um, you know, was an album that I was very much bumping in 96, a lot of. And yeah, the Fugees came in and I thought that, you know, oftentimes we credit kind of this pop sampling wave to Puff Daddy and, and Bad Boy and, and sometimes the Jermaine Dupri and So So Deaf, two guys we may talk about later in this podcast. But the Fugees had a sound that I thought was so interesting because they could tap into so many different aspects of culture. Um, and I think, you know, your point, so, you know, the, the Fugees are one of the ultimate comeback stories. You know, these three, these three artists meet in high school, Maplewood, New Jersey, Columbia High School, Praz and Wyclef are cousins. Lauren Hill reportedly, you know, auditions for Praz to be in a group, meets Wyclef. They change their names a number of times. You know, that first album, it even says the Fugees, a.k.a. the uh, translator crew. 
Mm. And that was their original name. And then, you know, most heads know they also kind of dubbed themselves a refugee camp, which was a play on the fact that, you know, Wyclef and Praz are of Haitian descent. This term refugee was often used for, you know, Haitian immigrants disparagingly often, um, but they really embraced that side of culture. And they make this album, and it's funny, I never listen to Blunted on Reality. Um, you know, it's just, it was something then that I didn't feel like when I heard, like, because that was one of the cases, the score comes out, it does all it does. And then like a lot of times you want to go back and listen to the catalog leading up to, and there is just such a disconnect. But I remember when we celebrated the, you know, 20th anniversary of the score, I, I spoke, you linked me up with Salam Rami, who produced Fuji La on the score, but also made the Nappy Heads uh, remix. And I believe the vocab remix that you alluded to. So they make this album and they get one more video out of Rough House Records. And at this point, they can just kind of disappear into the abyss or they can see what happens. And they make the Nappy Heads remix, which is really interesting because it, it does what the Fugees would later do so well. It has samples. It has a bit of dance hall just to its, its bop. Um, but then they, they break into Corey Hart, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. Like, they do these different cues that are going to hit different parts of the audience. You know, you and I spent some time talking about the way that Drake with Certified Lover Boy hits all these different pockets that he's created. I think the Fugees in introducing themselves definitely made records that could reach the hardcore hip hop, which was very prevalent in the mid nineties. And then they, they reached, you know, the kind of on the peripheral, you know, maybe the white kids or maybe the kids that, you know, might've known a few records by so-and-so. And they use that, that song for an album that did so poorly, that song goes to right around the top 50 of the Billboard charts. I looked at it this morning and I was stunned and that gave them enough momentum to get a second album. And that formula, and Salam had told me, so that kind of begins things. Then they make Fuji La, which you know, was a beat originally um, kind of being shopped to Fat Joe, which is crazy. Hmm. And Wyclef reportedly was like, yo, Salam, man, let me, let, me, let me do something to that. They had gone in to record something for the Clocker soundtrack, the Spike Lee joint. They never make the soundtrack. But while they're in the studio, they're like, yo, let's, let's do two. Let's do this other record. So they did Fuji La, which they really built the score around and it's crazy because salam only gets one credit on the album but i think of like these stories in hip-hop of like kanye going to jay-z with a beat tape that eventually becomes the blueprint with just blaze and bink and all of these different people contributing with a cohesive sound and i feel like that's what you get with the score um this aspect of like yo let's take records and they aren't the on the nose records that puffy uses like you know, you probably just because of our age difference, you, were you familiar with the Roberta Flack joint growing up? Yeah. Yeah. I'd heard it. I'd heard and it. Sure, yeah. Delphonics, Ready or Not, you know, like you yeah. would know these records. I might have heard them in the periphery, but they come in, they sound familiar, but then they, they flip them fresh. I mean, the one for me is, you know, my mom was a Bob Marley head. So the Fugees came in and redid No Woman, No Cry. And on one hand, it's a cover. But on the other, they do enough to make it their own record where, you know, they, I believe they performed that this week in New York and that continues to be a crowd favorite. That formula that the Fugees have is just phenomenal. And to your point, you know, it's sort of like what we say with Bismarck E, there's so much depth behind the hits. You know, when I listen to the Fugees, um, Killing Me Softly is never the first song that I play. That's never the one that I seek out. I'm happy with it. I think it's a great record. But I liked when they hit that that kind of pocket of doing all things and the vocab remix for sure 
is that? Because you've got day-to-day nightmares. You've got all of these different elements that just created such an original group, in my opinion. Yeah, and it was such a massive, massive success. It's weird because the Fugees have such cultural impact, but only put out two albums. And for most people, they only know one. And yet here we are 25 years later and their announcement creates a seismic explosion. You've got people like, you know, clamoring for tickets and paying eight times what they cost basically off one album, you mm-hmm. know? And so, you know, how much though, so I want to talk about what they had to overcome to get to this place in reunion as well, but how much of this reaction do you think is to the Fuji's? versus, you know, um, the Fuji's plus Lauren and what she brings to the table. Because, you know, she had a very similar kind of arc that the, the group did, you know, um, has two albums technically, you know, one being, you know, the the kind of MTV live one, um, but one album that that shifted culture and, and stands as a classic to this day in the miseducation of Lauren Hill that added to the lore of, I think, the group. You know, I I think when people think of them, they think Lauren first, then they think Clef. And I think people give Clef his props, you know, as the kind of musical maestro behind the scenes, like making things happen and obviously multi-talented with the ability to play multiple instruments um, and sing and rap himself. And he had success, too, with with his solo albums. Um, And Proz kind of being like the the person that people like think of more distantly as part of the group. So. You know, the, again, how much do you think of this is a reaction to the group being together and the story behind it and the music they did versus it being a combination of the group, but also people being excited about getting Lauren as well? I definitely think it's B. I mean, I, I think if if Wyclef and Proz do this without Lauren's participation, it's not a story for a lot of people. I mean, if anything, it's a story that's a kind of an unfortunate punchline. But the fact that, you know, and, and it, it's wild to me because... The group, you know, the group has all this success, you know, to your point, the score happens by Praz's count, it sells 22 million copies worldwide, which means it went diamond twice. Like that's insane. Um, by the RIAA, which, you know, tracks primarily domestic sales, it's seven times platinum. That still puts it in a very, very, very elite class. Um, and the album represents so much and there's never a follow-up. You get the, boot, the, the B-sides and bootlegs joint just kind of an EP with some remixes and some of which we're talking about right now with vocab and some different things like that. But, you know, to, to, I think this is the closest thing um, to the fact of, you know, learning that a tribe called quest had that album in 2016 with Fife. Cause I don't think anyone saw that happening, especially after the documentary. And, you know, Lauren is making her way back into the spotlight, especially on the Nas record. Lauren has toured solo. I mean, she, she's done tours with Nas and with other artists, but to see this, no one saw it coming. And I feel like it, it's a touchstone of 25 years ago, but it's also like, is this, is, is this really happening moment? And the fact that there's only a dozen dates, um, it's, a, it's a really big deal. And I think one of the other things is, this is one of the first big tours by an artist, not a music festival that's happening in this weird kind of is it post, is it not post-COVID world? And for a lot of people that have been hungry to go to shows and have an Instagrammable were you there moment, this represents that, especially in a city like New York. Yeah, you know, some of the trolling I saw online was, 
you know, people were asking if Lauren knew that the reunion was happening. And they were also talking about, uh, you know, that they probably needed to um, announce it today so she could get to the show on time. Um, you know, so, it, but that made me think about the the nobody line that she had about like, you know, y'all talking about my lateness. I'm out here trying to, I'm, try, I'm out here trying to so, save souls. Um, and y'all talking about my lateness, you know, um, you know, when I, when I think about the issues they had as a group, I think it spawns, you know, part in part based on the question I asked, which is, okay, they have this rise, it's meteoric. You have, um, bigger egos in the group, obviously, you know, I think most artists have pretty big egos to, to do what they do. And, you know, you have one, uh, maybe Wyclef, who sees himself as a musical leader, mm-hmm. and the other one who, in Lauren, who's getting most of the attention. And eventually, that led to friction within the group. Uh, you know, there are rumors of, like, romantic um, involvement, and they split. But, you know, when, they, when, they, when things ended for them, it wasn't all good. I mean, you listen to Lost Ones, from Lauren's mm-hmm. album, and that was like a really, uh, you know, cutting you know, dig, public dig at, you know, at, at Clef and, and what was going on with the group. So how do you think they overcame this? So, you know, and let's take it one step deeper. I'm always fascinated with these tipping point moments in hip hop, you know, um, Nas and, and Tupac meeting, you and I spoke about it recently and, and Nas talks about it on Death Row East meeting in the park and like what, what could have come out of that had Tupac lived, um, you know, I, we, you know, you can go on and on of just these different moments that shifted culture. And so the Fugees take a break from what I understand, you know, they win the Grammy for best rap album in 1997 for the album they had released the prior year. Um, they also win another one for best R and B performance for killing them softly. They were up for album of the year, which again, speaks to just how big the score was. They get incredibly paid, you know, in 2016, Proz does an interview with Vlad TV. And he said that, you know, because of the group not doing so well with Blunted on Reality, it wasn't like they were offered a ton of money, you know. And, and Diamond D actually told me one time that he has not seen much at all, if anything, from this album because they didn't clear a lot of the samples at the front. So later on, you know, uh, when, when artists came to get paid, producers and, and, and other role players in the album weren't properly compensated. But the Fugees themselves, according to Praz, they, they took, among the three of them, a $135,000 advance to make the album. And like Outkast, like Death Row, like, like Gangstar, they had their own studio. So their costs were, you know, apart from whatever samples they cleared, probably to a minimum. They had Diamond on the album, The Outsiders, and John Forte. But like, those were emerging, apart from Diamond, those are emerging crews. So it's not a big budget album that way. And then it takes off. So because they had taken such a low advance, it's easy to recoup, especially with a number one album and they get paid. Like they had every reason to stay in the group, but you know, they all sort of like, um, you know, NWA or Wu-Tang or Bone Thugs and Harmony. Of course, these are three artists that want to do their own thing. In 97, Wyclef makes the carnival. Um, Lauren and Proz participate on the album. They're on the album. I think oftentimes people think of the Fuji's making the score and then boom, everything goes black and that's not it. But in 97, you know, Lauren Hill becomes a mother. She has a son, Zion, and according, you know, which she made a song about. And according to Wyclef's memoir, which came out nine years ago, um, 
he says that the group fell apart when Lauren Hill was pregnant and she wanted a paternity test from Wyclef because the two had been romantically involved for years, you know, at that point for, for, for years. And, you know, throughout history, that's happened in groups. I think of Fleetwood Mac um, being one. I mean, can you think of another where there's members of the group that are kind of behind the scenes romantically involved? You know, it's hard to say. Um, I think there were rumors about Prince, um, you know, certainly with, with Sheila E. when, when they were touring. Um, now, I mean, there are tons. There are tons yeah. of examples. A lot of stuff we probably don't even know about, but yeah. Word. And by this point, by 97, you know, Wyclef is getting married to another woman who I believe is still his wife today. I'm, I'm not sure of that. And, you know, that behind the scenes romance comes to a halt. And Wyclef has accused Lauren of jealousy. She demands the paternity test. And that, be, you know, Zion, as far as the world knows, has been fathered by Rohan Marley, which is, you know, one of Bob's younger, younger sons. And that creates a huge tension in the group. And by 98, Lauren comes out with Miseducation of Lauren Hill, not just Lost Ones. There's, so, there's other songs that people presume are references to not only Wyclef, but Proz. And Wyclef and Proz have always seemed to be a unified front. They're cousins. Um, they just, in the years that have followed, always seem to be on kind of one side of the table, Lauren on another. And I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Lauren has said like, look, I was exploited. Like as a woman in this music industry, I was taken advantage of, you know, blah, 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 and it's not fair. And so she puts out an album. Wyclef is all over Proz's debut, Ghetto Superstar, producing it, playing guitar in the title track with ODB and Maya, um, you know, and there's a huge rift that for the next few years, they never recover from. And one of my great regrets in life, Reggie, is 2004, my, you know, one of my journalistic mentors and my boss at the time, Chuck Creekmer of all hip hop hits me and he goes, yo, do you want to go to Brooklyn tomorrow to a Dave Chappelle thing? I think it's going to be special. And I was in Philly and I didn't go. I was just <laughs> like, oh man, that's like, that's a bus ride and a train ride. And if it ends late, how am I going to get back and blah. And of course- Wait, This is the Dave Chappelle block party? Yeah, oh, which wow. was okay. crazy because- at that show, the Fuji's reunited. Um, but between 90, 98 and 2004, it's like boom, radio silence. Because Wyclef isn't really talking on the issue. He's certainly not saying what he said later in his memoir, because that came as a giant revelation. Proz kind of distances himself entirely, you know, kind of fades from the spotlight, isn't, you know, he's the least... Um, you know, I, I shouldn't even say active, but it's not like Proz is going to go out and do touring on his own. And Lauren, you know, apart from the MTV concert, just kind of kind of disappears a little bit. And then they make this impromptu thing, which when I think of Dave Chappelle's block party, I don't know about you, but that is the next thing I think of is that was the Fuji's reunion. What about you? Yeah, I mean, that was a, a, a huge moment. And, you know, just the crazy thing is it wasn't even the biggest moment of the, the film. The film was just such a... Um, impactful part of culture. I got to go back and look at it again because there are just so many moments. Uh, I remember Erica was a big part of it, but yeah. And, but it was weird because like you said, there was no buildup. It was a surprise, obviously a great surprise, but then there was nothing that came of it either, you know? So. Well, there kind of was, if I can, if I can interject, I mean, well, that good. there was, and I know where you're going, but I'm just going to say like a lot of times when something like that happens, it kicks off like another tour. 
right? So think about like, um, you know, what happened with Outcast a few years ago and what's happened with Tribe. You know, we, we alluded to this a little bit. I just watched Beach Rhymes in Life again yesterday. And despite the tension that lingered within the group, there were moments when they came together and it wasn't just a one-off. It continued for an extended period of time. And then they kind of like retreated back to their own corners. But so, go ahead. No, that's a really good point. I mean, that, that moment happens. And, and Jay Cole, who we're going to talk about, you know, he was in the, he's on the film. If you watch Dave Chappelle's block party in the crowd. Oh, is that right? Oh, yeah. Because I think he was at St. John's at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, nothing happens. And it's funny. You mentioned Tribe and Outcast. The Fuji's Tribe and Outcast are all signed to Sony. And from what I understand, all three of those groups have some sort of con- contractual obligation to their record label, because presumably when there's a, whenever there's success and acclaim, the label is going to extend their contract. So the Fugees, not unlike Tribe, not unlike Outkast, have had these, these things to fill. And, and then the next year in 2005, they make their first televised reunion appearance at the BET Awards which I have to admit, I must have been in college, didn't have cable. I didn't even necessarily remember that. But they did a 12-minute medley of their hits. Um, And then with that, kind of to your point, they released a single called Take It Easy, which it's so funny to me because, you know, I don't know about you, but that's not on the top of my mind. Oftentimes, I think that the Fugees kind of ended in the 90s. Could you, when you think of the Fugees, do you remember the one extra record they gave us? Not remotely, not remotely. I got to go back and listen to it. I don't even know if I heard it back then. It doesn't ring a bell at all. We had alluded to it on AFH, but even, you know, I listen to the record. It's funny for a group that I believe helped drive culture in a major way during the mid to late nineties. They come back in 2005, which is a huge transitional time in hip hop. I mean, that's the 50 cent, the TI, the, you know, G unit, Dem franchise boys era. And it's chasing the record lacks what we love about the Fuji's, but it's on the DSPs today released by Sony. I mean, it's not this record that is covered up. Like, you know, some of these records that like tribe later put out or, you know, they really did come back together, but it was uneventful. And within, within that year, they already go to now speaking ill of each other. Well, let Um, me, let me, let me, so I'll say two things. So one, if that record had performed and really taken off, I do think they would have had a reunion, right? That was probably the test. Let's see, you know, where we stand. You know, we got this heat from the BET Awards. We did, you know, Chappelle. Maybe it's time. They put the record out. It bricks and end of story, right? It, that's that's one of those moments in time where had it gone a different way, and I just finished Loki, so I'm all about the multiverse right now. So uh, I think we have at least a reunion tour then, and maybe even another album that pops up. But another thing that goes back to our point about anniversaries and there needing to be a certain amount of time for it to really matter to people, you know, seven year anniversary, no one cares about that. I think if they had put that record out, you know, 10, 15 years later and had given people time enough to kind of miss them and, and let it breathe instead of like, you know, just a, an extended hiatus, that record might have had a different impact and they might have gone on tour and like, you know, had a very different kind of like arc. That, that, I think that's a possibility. Yeah. And that, I mean, it's interesting, too, because at that point, they're nine, 10 years removed from the score. And I think your point earlier about Lauren and the way that she's spoken most recently in the Nas feature, but even in an essay she's written, I think Lauren, in the public perception, shoulders the blame for the Fugees, whereas 
I think her point is a valid one, you know, of like, yo, you guys are, are siding with, you know, the patriarchy on this one. And maybe I was taken advantage of and I was the other woman, but I'm not, I'm not Yoko Ono. I'm not to blame for this. And that doesn't mean that, you know, Yoko should be either. And Wyclef has gone on to, you know, produce massive hits for Shakira, really enjoy an active solo career, you know, had a foray in politics. But after that point, those tensions boil up again and pros, you know, pros reenters to make what I think is one of the, um, one of the craziest proclamations is he said, George Bush and Osama bin Laden are more likely to have a latte together than me go back in the studio of Lauren Hill. I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing uh, the pretty direct quote though. And, and Wyclef said the same and he really outs Lauren and says that she needs psychiatric help. And again, I mean, you know, that's a, that's a diss, you know, and especially back then, I don't think we were talking about mental health with the care and concern that we are now. And that gets these group, you know, that gets these three members further apart. And we really don't hear about them much after that in the context of each other. Um, you know, Wyclef releases his memoir. And then more recently, we covered this on AFH, a leak happened um, where Hot 97, you know, played a Fuji's record that was kind of represented as a new joint, which was a giant troll. And Lauren makes a rare statement of, yo, that's a leak. And that, that was recorded years ago when we were kind of back in the studio, presumably 05. And she said, I suspect I know who's behind it. Doesn't name names, but to me, and tell me if you feel differently, I felt that that was her going at presumably Wyclef, possibly Prost too. Possibly. Uh, an, another possibility is that it was a label and the label's trying to generate interest and it gets hard to like resist if, if a record gets a big reaction, the allure of coming back, you know, and that, that part of what I want to talk about too is, okay, there's a lot of history there. We know this and, you know, Bin Laden and Osama, Bin Laden and Bush never had that latte. So how do you think we got to a place where Lauren Praz and Wyclef could actually not only reunite to celebrate, but like go on tour together. I got a couple of possibilities I want to throw at you. So one is, one is money, right? That there's, um, you know, I think that egos start to subside after time, especially when the, the, the spotlight has eased off of people and none of them have the spotlight the way they did before. Um, Two, you know, the money is probably significant at this point and matters more now that the spotlight has subsided. But I don't think that money is enough because if it was just about money. I think they would have done this a long time ago and they would have continued to put out albums and continued to tour because that's a lot of money that's left off the table. So I think that, you know, maybe money is a part of it, but I think um, it's a couple more things too. So one is the nostalgia part that you were talking about. You know, um, I think that they are, you know, I think they are human beings and human beings, you know, time does heal all. All these cliches are around for a reason. And even if they're not in a place where they're hanging out backstage and like, you know, reminiscing over old times and things like that, I think they understand the importance of the moment and what they did together. And it's enough to kind of overcome whatever, the friction was at least temporarily so that they can acknowledge this and they understand that it only comes around once these 25th anniversaries and, and significant milestones like that. You know, the other um, could be a little bit of ego. You know, I think that over time, 
people miss that spotlight and this is that massive shot of dopamine you know i, I think that um for lauren that must have happened with the reaction to the nasverse because it just it was such universal um acclaim for who she is and a reminder of how great she can be and you know i think that the feedback that comes with this is is something that artists crave and will, will always do but but what do you think what, why do you think they they, yeah. they chose now they were I able like to put it aside I like that. And I know that there's a cynical reaction out there that, you know, because Lauren Hill had a public um, battle with the IRS that people are all, oh, you know, she needs money. I don't believe that. I really don't believe that. I think this is about legacy. I think money helps. Sure. But, you know, that 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 cliche of, you know, if you don't say if you don't talk about yourself, you're left to what other people say about you mm. is really true. And I feel that one of the reasons why A Tribe Called Quest made their final album was because Beats, Rhymes, and Life, well, a great documentary, it doesn't portray Q-Tip in the greatest light, you know? And, you know, I think he and Fife had a real brotherhood. And what's been said after Fife's passing, because they kept that recording secret, um, that's, that's apparent. I mean, these guys loved each other since they were teenagers. And if, if they don't make that album, then Q-Tip and, and, and Fife passes as he did, then Q-Tip looks a certain type of way. I think artists are very, very, very cognizant of legacy because of so much being said and written about them. I think that's why you get 50 Cent and Game taking a flick together. That's why you get Snoop and Suge Knight taking a flick together. That's why two different times, Jay-Z and Dame Dash have had these peace moments that later, you know, Dame will say something and, and it'll kind of undo that. And I feel that the Fugees are so talented. And let's take it one step further, you know, Oftentimes, you and I spoke recently about Drake's legacy. People act, and it's so erroneous. And we didn't even mention the Fugees. We were talking about Heavy D. We were talking about Zero. We were talking about Nate Dogg. But the Fugees brought, brought a great sense of vocal melody to hip-hop, and they are not given the credit they deserve. And I feel like sometimes that happens because this is a group that diverged so many times, at least you know, 10 years ago, going on 25. And... Coming back together, I think, allows them their proper place, excuse me, place in history. Um, and it allows a much nicer, kinder chapter where three different artists don't have to be spending their time talking about each other in a negative light. So you think it's a combination of all three, ego and wanting to define the narrative and shape their own kind of destiny in terms of what the group means to people, um, recognizing the moment and understanding its place and wanting to honor it even if it means, you know, putting aside differences and the money, the money is, the money is going to be good too. So you think, you think it's all three. Absolutely. And, and, you know, behind the scenes, there very well could be an opportunity that allows this group to get out of its obligations. If those still exist to the label. And I don't know if they would at this point, but you know, Sony is one of those labels that is very clever about, I mean, they've already, when Lauren talked about it in, um, in February of just like, Hey, a fan reminded me of this announcement she even plugged merchandise coming soon. And we're living in a time right now where I don't know about you, but when I see, when I see you know, people in their teens, 20s, and 30s, they're wearing shirts with TLC or Tupac or Ice Cube on them. There are so many licensing opportunities and the Fugees are a nostalgia app. So this could be an opportunity for them to turn the page legacy, financially, label obligations, um, all of those things. And, and yeah, I mean, money's nice too. I, I, I can't imagine these three artists are hurting for it. But we all want to revenue what, you know, we all want to monetize the great things that we've done. 
Um, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna go one step further, and this is like pure speculation, uh, and it's not thinking about them specifically, but it's thinking about human beings generally. And I think that the last year in particular, and we mentioned Five Dog and his passing too, has caused people um, at, at the age of the Fujis, which I would assume is like late 40s, like you know, creeping up on 50 to understand their mortality and see that it's not guaranteed. And I think a lot of times these beefs continue because people think that, uh, you know, at some point, you know, it'll, it'll pass and we'll make our amends and like, it'll be fine, but tomorrow's not guaranteed anymore. And so I think losing all the greats we've lost over the last year and the ones that have passed over the last five to 10 years from Nate dog, the five to whoever probably, you know, help to um, heal some of those wounds too, you know? I think, I think that's a great point. And I think we're no longer living in a time. I mean, one of the best things you can do is just piece it up. I firmly believe, you know, there's this upcoming music festival in LA. I believe it's next month. It might be November, but I look closely and we even put this in one of our, our recent articles about Ice Cube and Scarface doing a potential versus Ice Cube, Dub C, and Mac 10 are all in the same bill at this festival. I firmly believe we're going to see a West Side Connection pop-up reunion. We are going to see more and more of this. Wyclef has pieced it up with cannabis. Cannabis has pieced it up with LL. You know, we, it's not cool to have distance, you know, and, and this group, yeah, you care about each other. These three people made each other famous. All that came after that was because of the score. Um, you know, sure, they had each done things prior to that, but they became superstars because of what they did together. And to me, I mean, it's funny. One thing I will note, you know, to your point about the jokes, from what I read on Pitchfork, they were four hours late to New York. Um, but that said, it came with a 21-piece orchestra. Um, Wyclef freestyled. He rallied for the Biden administration to do more for the people of Haiti, um, which is great. I mean, the Fuji's doesn't get talked about often enough, but they've They've done a lot of charitable things. They've been very political, especially, you know, for the nation of Haiti. They donated their studio um, to provide shelter for people. And I, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a really good moment for hip hop. Well, whatever the reason, you know, salute to them. It's great to see them back. One of hip hop's all time great groups. I, for one, don't you think, think we're going to get. I was going to say, yeah, I, for one, don't think that the, the chapter is closed on them. And I think that, uh, or I, I should say the book, you know, I think there's another chapter. I think that based on this reaction, they're going to see how much people do want Fuji's music. Clearly, people want Lauren music. Like I said, she's in she's in fighting shape in terms of her verses. Um, I, I think Clef probably stays in shape. So it would not surprise me if, um, you know, at the end of this, there's another Fuji album that comes out. And if Salam could get in the mix, too, because he seems to be that guy who helps to be the glue for them. I think it could be special. Yeah. And I don't I mean, Wyclef is a producer. And, and let's just shout out because he was very much a part of the success too. you know, Jerry Wonder, Duplessis you know, their sound has evolved. We haven't gotten the Wyclef's, you know, Fuji sound in my estimation since the early 2000s off of his solo records. And it was never the same without Lauren and Proz. So if they can come back with that formula, I think that would be great. It was great what Tribe did. And I also think it was great what, what Premier did with Gangstar, you know, um, two years ago. And again, taking legacy and giving a really peaceful final chapter on the group, you know. Yeah, man. 
So you mentioned J. Cole and being in the crowd in Chappelle, uh, Chappelle's Black Party. That's crazy. I got I to go back and look at that for sure now. Um, Cole is back in the news this week, too. He dropped a, a song called Heaven's EP, and it was just a video. I'm not even sure if it's on DSPs. Have you checked to see if it's on? No, you know what? I even looked. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll add it to the playlist if it is. But, um, you know, this was so he drops this Lucy, right? And he's done this a few times. He's had some very impactful Lucy's. He's not like Drake where he's dropping them like, you know, every few months or so. But when he does, they make noise. And so some of the ones that I think are noteworthy over the years are false prophets. And often, you know, he does this where he'll take a familiar beat and put his stamp on it. So Heaven's EP is over uh, Drake's pipe down. And we'll get into that because it's it's significant, I think, based on the lyrics and and, and also kind of you know, some things he says. Um, but False Prophets was over the same loop that Joey Badass used for um, um, uh, was his first single. Um, why am I it's off 1999? You know, uh, not survival tactics. Oh. No, no um, waves. Wait, so Joey Battis's Waves, uh, I think, which I think is a Jay Dilla uh, beat, right? Um, well, not my, not my area of expertise, yeah. So Waves, Joey Badass's joint is crazy. Um, and and Cole dropped this. And he, again, did it as a video to start. He's sitting on a bus, on the back of the bus. And the song is an indictment about Kanye and, um, you know, how he's kind of lost touch over the years with his popularity and, and, you know, diverged from what he stood for back in the day with the consciousness and stuff like that. But then the second verse, a lot of people speculated and ultimately came out that it was about Wale and, you know, really caring way too much about what the press said about him and, you know, and, you know, being too concerned about people not giving us props instead of just kind of living in his own greatness. And then, you know, he had high for hours, um, this was an original production. And this song, he talks about Obama going to the White House and going in with questions about why Obama's not doing more for black folks. And he talks about how he asked him that question, even though he was nervous. And he's very descriptive about the moment. And he, and he says, you know, Obama gave him an answer that was you know, satisfactory, but then he added a coda. And he said, you know, this stuff, you know, brother and not using those words politics like so acknowledging that he he had a different understanding and more um sympathy for obama's position um after that you know a, a third was uh, middle child which was gigantic became cole's biggest record ever um and that was about him being kind of squeezed between between two generations you know the generation of the 90s that people consider to be the goats of hip hop and this current generation that doesn't really care about that and and you know um, doesn't care about him and kind of alluding to the dust up that he had um, you know with an entire generation of people with 1989 and um, 85 uh, 85 yeah 1985 yeah. Um, you're thinking of Taylor yeah. Swift man yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and it really kind of gets into that and then the last one was um, last summer snow in the bluff. Um, and that's a song where he also he's kind of going at No Name, who, um, you know, was kind of calling him out for not doing enough in the Black Lives Matters movement. Um, 
And he got taken to task for that, for like, you know, attacking a black woman on, on wax, even though it wasn't as much of an attack as it was commentary and a response to, you know, things that she had said as well. But in any case, Cole uses these Lucy's as moments to, as, of self-reflection, because they're always very, very pensive. And I think what people miss a lot of times is that often the criticism and the focus is much more on him than it is anyone else. And the other mentions are kind of incidental. Um, but then also, I think he very strategically uses them to uh, accomplish another purpose. In this case, um, you know, he's, he's done them to announce albums. Like uh, I think um, False Prophets was just before um, uh, I forget which album, uh, maybe KOD, but one of his albums came out. In this case, it happened three days before his tour commenced. And I'm going to the show next week. I can't wait. I think you and I, uh, last time I saw him was when you and I went yeah. together. Um, but um, why do you think he decided to drop this now? I think there's a huge conversation going on in hip hop. One that, you know, we have been covering on AFH that has a few figures in it, notably Drake, Kanye West and Kendrick Lamar, um, possibly Pusha T too. And I also think, you know, Cole's Lucy's work because, you know, few artists are as thematic with their albums. And sometimes I feel that Cole has a state of the union address that he wants to get out there fairly urgently and he uses that, um, that don't necessarily work in the context of his albums. Um, and I feel like it's got to feel empowering to be able to make a song on Tuesday and put it out for Wednesday morning. Um, and he is of the generation that, thanks to SoundCloud and Piff and other things, was able to do that. And he's still doing it. And I think as we've watched Kendrick Lamar smoking on your top five and Drake and Kanye, you know, kind of one, one-upping each other in a number of ways... Cole needed an opportunity to say, hey, look, um, I'm out here. And also, you know, Kendrick had made a comment about albums this year. And I believe up until about late August that J. Cole dropped the most significant album in the mainstream facing lyrical space. Would you agree with that? I agree. You know, he's still at the top of my list um, for albums this year with evidence being, you know, right there, um, right there next to him. I think those are the two, uh, my two favorite albums thus far. I love Skazoo's album too, but Cole, you know, attention spans are so short these days and, you know, with Kanye dropping, with Drake dropping, with Kendrick, like knocking on the door, I think it's easy to kind of forget about Cole having done what he did. Now, the other thing is that I believe that the Grammy consideration is um, the window closes, I think, uh, September. October. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I think it's September 30th. So maybe October 1st is the first day. So if he's being strategic, and I think he is, he's rekindling interest and raising awareness in his album again, in addition to the tour. And if and you know if, if you recall, KLD was not nominated for best rap album with that, which I still think is one of the greatest travesties of the last five years with Grammy stuff. Because to me, that was the best album that year, like hands down. And for it to not even get a nomination is ridiculous. So I think this is Cole very astutely reminding folks, "Yo, I got a project out. Don't forget it. Don't leave it off." You know. And then, like you said, sending a message that. Yeah, Drake and Kendrick, 
have resurfaced and we'll get into that in a second with the, with the, with the, the, the lyrics, but don't forget I'm here too. That's really interesting too, because the Grammys, you know, are voted upon by, you know, a committee. And I've had several people in the last week ask me if I'm on that committee. And while I know people that are, I'm not, you know, and I always, I never sought it out, but I wish that I was because I think that I understand as do you, you know, we don't get, we listen to a lot more than 10 rap albums a year. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear at this point in the game, you shouting out evidence, which is still my AOTY so far. Um, but yeah, Cole was generally snubbed. And it's, it's a great reminder to let people that only have a short attention span and might only be caught up in CLB and in Donda and, you know, whatever else that, yo, I'm here and I made a good album. And also I think that Cole had a very interesting point too, which is, we're watching, I mean, Kendrick Lamar knows how to spin controversy. He did that with control. He did that, in my opinion, with family ties with Baby King. He knows, he likes to be competitive and in a very surgical, um, performance-driven way, he likes to throw some elbows and be the best. You know, it reminds me of, of you know, Michael Jordan, you know, looking Allen Iverson in the eye and, and, and just stunting on him and, you know, and, 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 and that just competitive spirit. And I think J. Cole has some of that, but he uses this as an opportunity too to say, hey, I've accomplished all I have without controversy, especially as you see Drake and Kanye going back and forth. Um, it's just a kind of reminder of, yo, let the skills pay the bills too. Word. And so let, let's get into his lyrics because, you know, this dude is one of the most uh, honest and transparent artists out there you know i think in any genre he talks about on his album he talks about so much um you know let go of my hand it's so deep uh you know in terms of his own childhood and, and his, his awareness now as a father trying to raise his son and altercations he's had and all that stuff but in this one he talks about a few things so you know he says that i represent intelligent you know brothers that grew up harshly have you ever heard Cole frame like that's just such a interesting way to like frame who he is and what he means. And, um, you know, you just don't hear like people describing themselves that way. And but what, what do you think about that? Did that strike you? Yeah, I mean, I like it because I think to this day, even though, you know, we're almost 10 years past it. Oh, we go. Oh, you know, Kendrick Lamar was the good kid in the Mad City and, and Drake is Drake. You know, Drake is you know, the superstar that grew up acting, but also will tell you about hard times and his parents split and all that. And it's just an interesting way of Jay Cool of saying, this is what I am. And, and I like that line a lot um, because I feel that at various points in his career, Jay Cool is, is, is chided a bit for his intelligence or for his, you know, intentions with things. But he's also reminding you too, like if you look at some of my songs, you know, I, I didn't have a silver spoon upbringing by any measure. Yeah, I mean- the commentary has been there throughout, right? Since his early mixtapes, he's always very proudly talked about St. John's and going to college, which I think is a phenomenal message because you just don't hear it in hip hop enough. You know, people glorify the, you know, the street life and stuff like that without putting focus and in some ways denigrating the education piece of it. So I love that Cole does that, but he's also saying, listen, I'm not a sucker either. I wasn't out there shooting and selling, um, but I saw things around me much like Nas did. And, um, you know, it was affected by these things. So I'm, I'm providing a voice to, to others out there, but to hear him just describe it so succinctly was like, was deep for me. 
He also talks about, and this is something he's been talking about quite a bit. You know, if you watch that documentary leading up to the off season, um, you know, he's questioned himself and whether or not he's lost something with the fame, whether it be artistic credibility or, you know, being real or true to himself. And, and, you know, he talks about whether he's still contributing value, you know, after his success on this song. It's a constant battle of his, this fight versus, of commercial versus um, substantive. And I want to talk about that in a bit, too. But then I think the thing that uh, really and, you know, so one of the things. So I think Drake and Kendrick question themselves quite a bit, too, but they do it in different ways. So Kendrick, if you start to listen to dissect and and, um, you know, both for To Pimp a Butterfly and for Damn and really study his music. There is a religious narrative unlike any that I can ever recall in hip hop in almost every body of work of Kendrick's. You know, it was right there in front of us. You got the the Minister Society and, and Boys in the Hood comparisons for uh, Good Kid, Mad City. But at the end of the day, it was a story of redemption, you know, and accepting Jesus in order to, uh, you know, be redeemed. Like that, that was the, the, narr- the, the dominant narrative throughout, you know, from the skits to the prayers and things like that, sing about me, I'm dying of thirst, like, you know, um, and that wasn't it, like, every single one of Kendrick's albums has a pretty strong religious narrative to it, so for him, he's questioning his place on this earth, um, you know, um, what happens on earth stays on earth, you know, he, he's questioning that, and his his spirituality versus his human flaws, That that's Kendrick's question, right, for Drake, his question seems to revolve around self-esteem. You know, he's this guy who is, is arguably the biggest artist in the world, and we're getting crazy flack and attention recently on our, you know, on our podcast where we dared to say that Drake had more commercial success than Michael Jackson. No comments on greatness or influence or cultural impact. Um, because I wouldn't say that, you know, I think that Michael still has um, more cultural impact than just about any artist that's ever lived. But in terms of pure, like, commercial sales and success and stats in this era, especially given um, the the magnitude of media that people have to face, I think Drake, you know, stands there, but I'm not going to, like, rehash that now. Um, In any case... For Drake, he's this guy who's achieved monumental success, right? Like, you know, taking away any comparisons, he's gigantic in the space. And yet he's still got these self-esteem things, right? Like he he, he constantly talks about his insecurities. Um, and so there's that juxtaposition about people who have achieved a ton, but still have self, self-esteem issues. So that's what he questions. For Cole, it's different, right? It, it tends to be more about his artistic merit and you know, where does he stand, you know, and a lot of that is the feedback that he gets, which he references in another line where he talks about like, he's always getting the bronze from people. People give either Drake or Kendrick, depending on what camp you fall, the gold and the silver. And he seems to think that he always gets that bronze. He's always third place or afterthought, almost like the prize of the Fuji's type thing. Right. So, um, you and I have talked about this a bit, but I don't think we've talked about it enough and really entertained it. Like, is it possible that J. Cole, and we have an entire podcast devoted to this, is the GOAT of his generation? People think Kendrick because of critical acclaim. People think Drake because of commercial success. But I would argue that um, while Cole hasn't had the same critical acclaim as Kendrick, 
he has had more so than Drake. And while he hasn't had the same um, commercial success as Drake, he's had more so than Kendrick. And he's consistently put out incredibly high quality albums since 2014, Forest Hills Drive. I personally don't think he's had a miss since then. He drops more frequently than Kendrick um, um, and with more critical acclaim than Drake. So is it possible or do you think that that he has not gotten his due as as the potential real GOAT of this generation? Do I think it's possible that he is the GOAT of this generation? Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think his highlights are to the level of Drake's or Kendrick's. That's just me saying that. I, But it's funny. I'm, you're great at basketball analogies. In a way, I'm thinking of, you know, football where, you know, everyone spent all of those years talking about Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And meanwhile, perhaps J. Cole is the Drew Brees who's, you know, doing it and just doesn't get the fanfare of the other two guys. But I think that Kendrick's highs are higher. And I would say, you know, well, I think that, that J. Cole, um, I listen to much more of his music than I do Drake's. I think, I think he struggles to occupy the spotlight and make memorable, far-reaching songs the way that Drake does. And that's no knock on him because I believe if there's a number three if there is a bronze of that generation um, on the lyrical side, I'm not talking about future. I'm not talking about, you know, Travis, but I think that J Cole's there um, and, and cemented is so, but that doesn't mean that that can't change. All right. So I'm going to give you a different sports analogy. Um, people talk about Jordan, Michael Jordan as being the goat. And there's an entire generation now that talks about LeBron being the goat. Right. And occasionally Kobe will, will, will slip into that. But I'm going to say that a lot of people forget about Tim Duncan. Mm -hmm. Tim Duncan has got five rings. Tim Duncan, you know, put up a double double for the vast majority of his career. Uh, he was quiet, unassuming, but best believe, like, you know, when it came down to it, he was the guy who was going to win you that game. And his body of work was consistent throughout time. But he wasn't a flashy dude. Right. And Cole talks about that, too. Cole talks about the fact that. You know, he's not comfortable on red carpets. He's not that dude out on social media, like, you know, talking about how lit he is and how everything is popping. He's quiet. And perhaps that's been a disservice to his legacy because he doesn't draw the same attention as people out there, you know, kind of raising the flag and, you know, and setting themselves on fire to borrow an analogy from our brother, Justin Hunt. But that doesn't mean that he's any less great. And I think I think the Tim Duncan analogy stands, you know, people don't talk about Duncan in that way because he wasn't a flashy dude and he was never the guy, you know, drawing attention to himself. He wasn't an activist like he was just the guy who went to work every day and, you know, and and was an all star at work every day, you know, but put his head down and came back home like and collected chips. I think that's cool. And I think because of that it's much more of a legitimate conversation than people allow as to who's the greatest between the three of them. Yeah. And I like that analogy. I mean, I, I think that that's a fitting one. And Tim Duncan, those, those squads that, that won chips, he really focused on the team as I remember. And, and J Cole's done that. I mean, when we talk about the dynasties of Dreamville versus TDE versus OVO, you know, J. Cole has made people around him look phenomenal, and he's had a very much a team-minded game down to the recent resurgence of features, down to what he's done with his label and Revenge of the Dreamers. I like that analogy. I do think Cole could, could climb, and I love this song. I love that it – because I find this to be so much more interesting 
than that petty ish between Kanye, who I know is not part of this part of the discussion, and Drake. And I like that Cole just said, you know, like let's let's have a different let's have a different aspect of this conversation. Yeah, and you think about so what Kendrick and, and Drake bring to the table, right? So Drake just brings bangers, and there's not necessarily a theme to most of his albums. It's just you know there are themes within, but it's not like a unified, cohesive theme throughout. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's what the off season is. The off season has like a ton of bangers, you know, and he's got features and things like that. Uh, and he's got some important things that he says throughout, but there's not a unified theme. You know, I know it's all framed around the notion of him, you know, going back to the the time you got to put in between the season in order to get great, but there's not a real theme to the album. Kendrick, on the other hand, is a guy who is making albums, like unified bodies of work. Um, that was certainly the case for Good Kid, Mad City, and for Damn. Um, to Pimp a Butterfly was there too, although I think it was not as as clear as it was for those two albums. But then you go to KOD, and this is a guy who is, you know, in a year that we where we lose Mac Miller and Lil Peep, you know, putting out an album you know, warning of the, the, the perils of addiction and not just to drugs, but to money and sex and technology and all these things that lure us in and very consistently and cohesively throughout touches on all these different forms of addiction. Talks about Kevin Hart, like videos that support it. That to me is one of the greatest artistic statements we've had in years and yet he doesn't get recognized for it. So he plays in both their spaces and I think does it incredibly well, but but just doesn't get the props for it, you know. But it's interesting because one of the people he name checked actually joined him on stage um, at his opening date for his, his uh, tour now in Miami. And that was Drake. And so Drake came out and said, I just like I got to say this just because I don't always want to have a heartfelt moment. We're on stage together and shit, but. You did the pipe down freestyle the other day, right? You said in the freestyle about they handed you the bronze and whatever, whatever, me and Kendrick. I want you to understand something. You are without a doubt one of the greatest rappers to touch a mic. I want to let you know there's way too many people in the world that think and know J. Cole is at the top of the pole position. I love you with all my heart. You're my brother. You're one of my favorite artists, and I appreciate you having me out here. Now, what do you think about that? Is that Drake? being hyperbolic in a moment or you think that's Drake being sincere I think that's Drake being sincere and keeping it a being and I thought that that was you know at a time when everything has been so competitive I I don't know that Drake stands to gain anything from that I mean Drake looks like a a, a cool heartfelt guy at a time when maybe his album isn't being celebrated as he would have hoped but I don't I don't see this as a strategic move in any way about that I think this is you know, there were three, there were other artists in that conversation, but these guys came up together. They were, they were, they were stars of the blogs and then they became stars of the charts and now they're stars of the world. And to have a moment where you can have two guys acknowledge each other that way, I thought was really phenomenal. And Drake is more than happy to say that there are people out there and quite a few of them that think that J. Cole is the best. I just thought that was great, man. And, and you, you're, you're who told me about it. Because oftentimes I think these these like, hey, let's appear on stage together moments in hip hop are kind of corny. I don't think this is corny at all. I think that's great. Yeah, no, I th- thought it was dope, too. And of course, at the end of this song, Cole shares that sentiment about himself. Right. He says that he's the one and the best one, the best one breathing, you know, the best rapper breathing, basically. Uh, so 
Um, I think that was dope. I think it was dope that Drake came out. And, you know, I think if there's anything that like takes away from people hands down giving it to Drake is, is that, you know, he is so huge. And like I, like I said, we've been catching flack because of that Michael Jackson episode. And someone who is, I think, a precursor to Drake in terms of injecting melody into hip hop, in terms of having huge, huge, huge pop success with rap is Ja Rule. And, you know, here's the irony for me. Ja Rule, you know, was kind of, his career was kind of killed by 50 Cent. Mm-hmm. Um, but 50 Cent killed Ja Rule using the exact same formula. It's really odd to me that people don't talk about that more. But you got songs like 21 Questions and Many Men and In the Club. And 50 is singing on all those hooks, right? Like every single one. Even P.I.M.P. Yeah, yeah even P.I.M.P. in the candy shop. He's using Ja Rule's formula yeah. to kill him, right? But because he has the narrative of I'm a dude who got shot nine times and survived it, you know, he's given a pass, even though Ja Rule has very similar street credibility, you know, um, and came up doing songs like Murder and, you know, as part of Murder, Inc., you know, it's just crazy to me. But Ja Rule kind of had his redemption moment, um, you know, as we took our break. And that was in a versus with Fat Joe. And that happened, uh, I think it was a Tuesday night. It was a big moment. It wasn't, it didn't have the same impact as Locks versus Dipset. Um, but I would say that for Ja Rule personally, it had similar impact in that it reminded people as to how great his music has been. And he's taken a lot of hits over the years with the, you know, Fire Festival and things like that. But those hits are are legit, man. They they endure. Um, and a lot of people went in thinking Fat Joe was gonna take this, uh, myself included, because Joe has got street bangers he's got stuff for the underground he's got huge club anthems um you know number one hits himself and he's been current for he's he's stayed relevant now for 25 years or so from flow joe all the way through um no sunshine this year um i thought it was joe's battle to lose um interestingly he didn't play any of his r kelly stuff because of the obvious reasons so maybe that took away from some of the, the the bigger bangers he could have played too. But most people's takeaway was that Ja Rule won that battle. But wh- whether or not you agree with that, I think it was a great showing for Ja Rule. And he was yeah. on Drink Champs recently. Um, and this is, you know, a lot of times they tape those, you know, pretty far in advance, but this one was definitely taped post-verses. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it. And, you know, Nori said, and he didn't mention words. He said, listen, like, I was glad to see that because a lot of people, you know, thought you were a sucker, you know. And, you know, Ja said that that was because of his commercial success. And it, it made me think, man, why is it that in hip hop we have a problem with, with, with two things that, like, other genres don't have a problem with? And one is legacy. We've talked a lot about how you know, the the current generation often doesn't have respect to for those who came before them and the history and how that's such just an odd thing because those are the people who laid the foundation and, you know, you're building on it, but you got to respect what came before you and that's unique to hip-hop. But the second thing is we as a uh, culture seem to turn our noses up at the people who have the most success. You know, Jay-Z is now, in a lot of contexts, vilified 
because he's had such incredible success. You know, same thing for um, for Drake, Kendrick. We've seen it. You know, we we were riding with Kendrick way before he became like a you know a mega pop superstar and Pulitzer Prize winner, and he was a darling in underground circles. And now that he's had commercial success, all of a sudden people are like think he's lame and stuff. And the ringleader for that is Drake, right? Like Drake, when he first came out with the mixtape, So Far Gone, people thought he was dope. Dude could spit, he could sing. Um, but, you know, very quickly, uh, the, the tables turned on him. So why do you think it is that commercial success diminishes credibility in hip hop? You know, it's, it's tricky. I think that, you know, and I say this as a white man, but I feel that, you know, there's a history in black culture of accusing folks of going Hollywood like you know that that expression goes back a long way and I feel that then when you add hip-hop there's always been this just aspect of at what point does one sell out and you know I, I was not of you know and I said this on a recent podcast I was not of a fan of Drake and his come up there were moments that I liked but I was really concerned about the biggest the the guy becoming the biggest star in the world crutching R&B to be a hip-hop artist I thought that could take the trends of the genre to a different place. And I think that it is Jake Payne hates R&B. <laughs> no, man, let, let hip hop be hip hop. But also too, I mean, you know, specific to the question and, you know, in the nineties, when hip hop starts to get money, when they start to get, you know, airplay on top 40 stations, MTV, you have hammer, you have vanilla ice, you have young MC tone Loke, you have these artists that are rising to the top. Whereas, you know, your cool Keiths, your cool G raps, even your big daddy Kings and Rock Kims, Ice Cubes, DOCs are not getting that attention, Cole Modi. And I think there will always be a why are you celebrating that when you could be celebrating this? And then we've seen it, you know, kind of expand over time. And again, I mean, part of that I said as cultural, and I hope I'm not misspeaking, tell me if I am. But I mean, do you agree with that at all? Well, you say let hip hop be hip hop. But if you go back to the roots of hip hop, hip hop was, you know, founded on like disco breaks. You think about Curtis Blow, uh, obviously Sugar Hill Gang, but they have like a tarnished legacy because of what that was. But people weren't thinking about that back then. Grandmaster Flash, you know, they, they use a lot of disco breaks. Like it was no that you couldn't get more like R&B and commercial than what rap was doing to start. It was party music. And that's, that's, that's where it's Genesis is. So I don't know where we got to the point where we couldn't have fun and like, you know, have musicality in records without it being hip hop. And in terms of the cultural thing, you know, um, I'm not sure if I agree with it, but if that is a mentality, then that's backwards too, right? Like the, if, if we can't allow um, our, hip hop stars to grow and become successful if people have to stay unsuccessful and you know not amass wealth in order to be credible then that's backwards the the reason why people are doing this is one artistic expression but two to make a living and so and i don't think think the two are mutually exclusive so why not celebrate those who do it so well that it allows them to not only make a living for themselves, but for, you know, provide for their families, for their crews, for entire communities in some cases, and even bigger when, when you get to the philanthropic level of like a Jay-Z and, and, you know, people like that. So I just think the mentality is backwards. And I think it's crabs in a crabs in a barrel kind of mentality. And, um, you know, I think it's something that we have to examine 
and stop. And I think it's something that is new. You think about people like Run DMC, you know, when they had Walk This Way, it was gigantic for them. They didn't lose credibility. They had Maya Adidas and they had Peter Piper and they had, you know, other songs like that. King of Rock, they were never accused of selling out or trying to cross over or raising hell. Like they were all, that was always part of them acknowledging that their musical DNA uh, lived much more expansively than just one particular genre. LL was the same way. When he put out I Need Love, he wasn't seen as a sucker. He was a dude who like, you know, was a a sex symbol and, you know, uh, girls wanted to be with him. Dudes wanted to be him. You know, that's what it was. So I don't understand when it took this, when it took this turn. That's, I mean, that's a really good point. And I think there's always kind of a nonconformist attitude that we have just as pop culture of, you know, hating on something. You know, yesterday I texted you and I was like, man, I hated on the Foo Fighters because I was upset that, you know, Nirvana, I felt like they were pushing dirt on. And that, that was, I was a young guy. It didn't make sense. My logic with that. And with hip hop, you know, I think Ja Rule had a comeback moment with New York. That record was massive. Um, and, and, and standing with Fat Joe and with Jada Kiss, that was a huge record. And I feel like Ja Rule got a last word moment at a time when 50 was the biggest rap star in New York. But what Ja did after that, I feel like he had some huge missteps. And whereas Fat Joe has had missteps in his career, he's had the opportunity to constantly evolve in a way that Ja hasn't. And yeah, I mean, things like the Fire Festival or even that um, Foot Locker commercial some years ago where Ja Rule was the Uber driver, he's poked fun at himself. And it's been very odd, but I was happy to see Ja get a moment because there are Ja Rule records that I really like. I might even use like, like you know, consider classic songs. And I was a Ja Rule fan in 1998. I thought Hollow was a great single. Um, and I admit that. And, you know, I think that Versus is a really interesting platform because it can remind you of what you really liked about somebody. And it gives them the stage to be great. I don't think Fat Joe lost anything to Ja Rule. I think it was a little bit different than the Dipset battle. And I also think both of them had a lot to live up to, to come in after that. Um, because I don't think there's really any tensions there. I don't think, I think some of it, they saw what had worked for Jada Kiss and Styles P and Sheik. And they tried to recreate it a little bit with some jabs, but it wasn't going to be that. But I think if the takeaway is that Ja Rule is a legitimate artist and should be treated with some respect beyond the 50 cent conversation, the great, you know, and that's kind of what I think it, it offered. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I was glad to see him get it. Cause I think that, you know, he, I think that history will be kinder to him than um, the recent past was. Um, mm-hmm. And it goes back to the conversation we were having about Fuji's and the significance of anniversaries. I think as time goes by and people get out of the moment and people grow and evolve, they start to see these things differently. You know, um, I see you put in the document like Hammer. You know, Hammer is a dude who also got clowned for for his commercial success. But you go back, dude, I went to two Hammer concerts. Um, I think it was two. I went to the Prey Tour and I think and uh, the Please Don't Hurt Him. Um, And Hammer put on one of the best shows I've ever seen in my life. Like him, Janet Jackson, like very few others had the pyrotechnics, the choreography, like the, the precision like that dude put on a show and he has some bangers, man. Um, yeah. Will Smith is another one. If you go back and listen to solo Will Smith stuff, like getting jiggy with it and Miami, those are dope songs, you know, um, you know, young MC, uh, tone low. A, a lot of these people 
have songs that you put them on at a wedding or a birthday party or a barbecue now. And it's fun, man. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just good fun. And so uh, I don't have shade for all of it. I love it all, as you know, from doom to, uh, to, to Drake and, you know, everything in between. Um, but you talked about Styles P and in the, 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 you talked about the locks uh, versus um, Dipset. Styles P was in the news too, because he did an article with GQ and he credited six nine in part for the versus strategy they took, and uh, I think that raised a lot of eyebrows. But his point was that he saw that a lot of people are now getting more attention for what they're saying and doing offline than what they actually do, like in the ring with the music or in the studio. And so he wanted to tap into that energy in order to reach the youth and let them know about who the locks were, people who might not know. And clearly it worked, you know, um, so it just, I thought it was fascinating. And that speaks to the J. Cole point, too, because I feel like J. Cole, you know, doesn't play to the 6-9 playbook, you know, <laughs> in the way that I think that Drake and even to some degree, competitively speaking, that Kendrick does. And yeah, man, I just anytime I see somebody, I want to just tell them that what they're doing is so corny after what Styles P said to uh, Jim Jones with the jewelry. Like that was my favorite line to see him out of character like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was cool. So commercial versus credibility. I think that um, when you talk about those terms, there's no two people um, on the spectrum who are, you know, seemingly further apart than Drake and Benny the butcher, right? Drake representing commercial success Benny the Butcher re representing credibility with everything that he's done with that Griselda movement. And Benny, I think over a year or so ago now, kind of teased the, the fact that he had a song with Drake in the tuck. And people, when, when you and I talked about it, actually, um, and when he dropped his song with Lil Wayne, um, we said this might be a precursor. And, and the beautiful thing is that that song didn't in any way compromise Benny, but it mm -hmm. did kind of evolve his sound a bit, you know, didn't make him sound too commercial. It was, he was still Benny, but on a bit more accessible track. It wasn't a dark Derringer alchemist kind of track. Um, but the song never manifested, you know, it wasn't on, it hasn't been on any Benny albums that have, and he's had like probably four or five since then. Uh, it hasn't been on Drake's stuff. It wasn't on certified lover boy. And recently that song was leaked. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to it? I didn't get a ch chance to listen to the leak. I saw Benny speaking about it. Um, did you? Yeah, I listened to it. I listened to it. And I'll say it was okay. It didn't blow me away. It wasn't bad, but it was just okay. It wasn't the moment that I thought it would be. You know, I personally like the Wayne record um, with Big Sean better um, and some of the raw stuff that Benny has done. Um, I think I'm more representative of where I'd like to see him go. It wasn't bad. It was cool. But, you know, it's curious to me uh, that it leaked. And, you know, um, I'm curious as to what people will think about it when it finally comes out. I don't think he compromises himself in any way, though. No, Benny talked about it on Twitch, too, before it leaked. And he said that, you know, he didn't know where it was going to end up because fans were asking him, like, why are you not on Certified Lover Boy? And he also said, you know, he was a little bit busy to um, – to be he said I don't concern myself with the features I don't get in regards to him not being on Donda you know people say oh Griselda's on Donda but it's it's Westside Gun and Conway and it's not Benny and I thought that was interesting too because Benny has a very chippy verse on Hell on Earth Part 2 from Westside Gun's new album you know Hitler Wears May 8 Side B 
where he talks about getting a Grammy snub for Burden of Proof and, you know, why his albums are better. And it's interesting, too. He shouts out by name, Tana Talk 3 and Burden of Proof. And you and I did a podcast on where, what Benny's you know, best albums are. It was interesting to kind of get his own take with that. And, um, yeah, I, it's, it's an interesting season for, for The Butcher. Yeah. And you mentioned that uh, West Side Gun Drop. Um, dude, I think that the two, the companions, the first one and the second one from Hermes 8, um, are two of the better projects this year. I think both have dropped since we did our June mm-hmm. uh, playlist. I would put both of them, uh, or certainly them as a combined effort, in my top 15 for sure. But have you, have you got a chance to take a listen to that? Yeah, I have. And I really, I mean, I can say with confidence, I've never seen an artist this big be this prolific. I mean, I, we didn't, Tupac didn't have the benefit of DSP technology. I think he relied on manufacturing and distribution. Um, you know, there was a run in the mid 2000s where Doom was putting out several albums a year that were, were, were often great at the same time. But West Side Gun, I've never seen anyone just literally flood the game and maintain quality and you know it's amazing this is the last of a series that goes back nine years which I think is pretty incredible and it's you know watching an artist evolve in real time and you know shout out to Gunn and 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 what he's accomplished and I thought that side B I I prefer it to side A I say that after just a few listens but as we kind of head towards the end of the year um, you know we'll I'll have to give it some more consideration, but I really like that hell on earth part two song you put on the podcast uh, or excuse me on the playlist. And um, yeah, guns just in, in fighting shape free cutter with Jay electronica. They have a great chemistry. And I also like Eddie Kingston on that album, which is the first Rome streets feature since signing to Griselda. And we've talked about him in a few times on this podcast, but Rome streets is, one of those guys that makes music that always kind of fits the, the Griselda aesthetic. And I'm glad to see him during a, an also prolific and incredible year, get that attention from that association and spotlight. Yeah. I love seeing what he's doing on these two projects in particular and bringing artists like that to the fore, you know, mm-hmm. so Rome, uh, he's doing it with Makami too. And obviously he made uh, pray for Haiti with him. And that is definitely going to make my end of the year list at this point. Uh, phenomenal album. And then also Stove got cooks who dropped a, a mix, uh, an album or uh, album last year. Um, that was great and started to, to generate some buzz. But I think that the stuff I've heard him do with West side gun is even better. And it makes me really excited to, to hear what he's going to do for his next project. Yeah, I mean, I just love the fact that Griselda sees guys that make music in a similar adjacent lane and embraces it instead of, and, and it's kind of the maturation of Gun and Company. I think, I think there was, you know, some like, we can, we can all win mentality that kind of hit them in like 2009. And if it's anything like what we've seen with what they've done with Boldy James, it's all good everything. And uh, I just love the way that label moves. They build all these different lanes, but still come together. And Hell on Earth Part 2 is just such enjoyable Listen, I'm glad you put it atop the playlist. Word. So anything else catch your ear this week? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, moving towards the end, I'm just going to say my song of the week is from Blue. Um, Blue put out a new album, The Color Blue, and it's spelled like his name. And then in parentheses, he adds an E. We recently had Blue and Mickey Fax on the podcast. They put out the narrative EP recently produced by Knox. And Blue is just in fighting shape, man. And I, 
I've said it before, but I think there's artists in hip hop that we hold to a certain album standard. You know, Nas with Illmatic, Snoop with Doggy Style, and they've made other great music. And Blue, you know, everyone talks about Below the Heavens, but there are so many other just really great bodies of work that he's been behind. And I'm really enjoying this new album. We're not, snap, we're not sample snitches here, but one thing I will say is that, you know, Blue and his team, which includes Exile on this one, they just don't give a damn about, you know, so it kind of reminds me of Below the Heavens. They're just like, we're going to put this out in the name of true hip hop style. And, um, you know, they had put out a first single called People Call Me Blue that I love. But my song of the week is called is Because the Sky is Blue. Every song on there has blue in the title. It's produced by J57, my man from Brown Bag All Stars. And he, they put out a video this week and it is just it's phenomenal rapping. It's great production. It's a beautiful marriage of the two. And for anyone that loves sample based, thought provoking, um, just kind of like, you know, 90s minded hip hop, you got to check that project out because that's been the one that I've played the most since Friday. Word, that's dope. That's dope. I got to check out that. Um, I want to check out the new D Smoke and mm-hmm. Mozzie put something out too. I started it, but I got to finish that. Uh, for me, my song of the week is Butter. You know, we talked about the fact that Low End Theory turned 30 years old. Um, that is one of the probably top five albums for me of all time. You know, definitely rap, maybe all time in any genre. And, you know, watching Beatrons in Life yesterday, it was very, um, very meaningful seeing just how that foreshadowed what was to, to come for Fife. You know, really, really, really crazy. And um, Butter was that that five jog uh, solo joint uh, on that album. And for me, the emergence of five is what made Tribe what Tribe became. And so, you know, shout out to them, shout out to him. Uh, but yeah, that's my song of the week. Man, R.I.P. Fife, he was always so good to me. And shout out to Tribe. That's That's a true, if you were to give somebody a hip hop album that had never listened to hip hop before, um, low end theory is is you know as good as any I can think of, and, and credit to those gentlemen. So, yeah, man. Until uh, until we do it again, I hope we get that special guest. And if not, either way, we're gonna keep having some dope conversation. Work. Always a pleasure, man. Likewise, man. Yo, have All a right. good one. Peace. Yeah, you too.